Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome to Stand Up, Speak Up, a podcast dedicated to spreading awareness about issues that usually get swept under the rug. This episode is brought to you by Wearable Therapy by Toki. Three months ago, we released the first episode of Finding Shelley DeRoche, a stand-up speak-up series aimed at finding answers and telling the story of Shelley DeRoche while raising awareness around issues that sex workers face and what led them to lead such a dangerous lifestyle. Shelley worked the streets of London, Ontario, Canada. She was a mother, a sister, a family member, and a friend to many. One day, she simply disappeared, never to be seen again. What you heard over the last eight episodes happened in real time. Week by week, we shared with you what we were uncovering about Shelley's case. You heard as the series progressed from phone interviews with Shelley's friends and family to dangerous situations where Carla and Chris entered scary basements of crack houses and spoke with the community, trying to expose the truth. With today's episode, we'll conclude the Finding Shelley DeRoche series. Carla shares her sentiments talks with an ambiguous law specialist, and we create a project to remember and honor Shelley for years to come. In the beginning of this series, we really had no idea where it would take us. The general public knew very little, and the London police weren't saying much either. Did they know more than they were letting on? Would this podcast quickly turn to a dead end with no leads whatsoever? As you heard in the previous episode, miraculously, we were able to gather some strong evidence indicating that something happened to Shelley around New Year's Eve 2015. While it may be impossible to ever obtain the proper evidence or witnesses to find Shelley's body or lay a murder charge, we seemed to have quite a clear picture of what likely happened and who was involved. I believe that at least four people are aware of exactly what happened to Shelley? I believe it happened over drugs. I don't think it was a planned murder. I think it happened. And then they had to deal with the aftermath of that out of fear of perhaps having to go back to jail or, I mean, something, something happened and it scared those individuals enough to cover it up. There's guilt among the parties. I think it's a really hard secret to carry. I think it's slowly eating away at them. I think it's probably impacted their life more than they can ever imagine. I think it must be very difficult to walk by the billboards of Shelley and be reminded of just how they committed like a horrible crime against someone that didn't deserve to to have to experience that. You'd think one of them would have cracked by now, and if they haven't by now, they're going to. 
because I think that there's a few of them where it is taking over their life. Yeah, definitely. And those were some of the indications that made this all the more believable. Like you, you and Chris talked to woman number two, you had her in the vehicle with you and we didn't have the entire interview in the podcast, but we heard it. You guys were there and you didn't do much to bring on the hysteria that she went into and started. She got really upset and started talking about that New Year's Eve party. And it all kind of came out of nowhere if you actually hear the full interview. So it's things like that that really personally made me say, wow, we found something here. I have nothing to do with what's happening. I was there two years ago on New Year's night. I was there. Did you ever talk to the police about this? And I'm not going to. Like, I don't know anything. You know, she's riddled with guilt, and, and she may not have been the one that actually did the act, but possibly witnessed it. I think there are quite a few witnesses of it. I mean, I'm sure it wasn't a gang of people. It happened, and people saw it, and it freaked them out. And I think there's a lot of stuff we haven't put into this podcast of people clearly saying who they've heard have done it and pretty clear about it. And we haven't brought that in because we don't want to put those sources at risk. And so we just send it right on to the police and we don't put it into the podcast. Right. So let's talk about that a bit now, because what we're effectively saying at this point is, is our involvement is done. You went as far as you could. You explored the leads that you had basically to the fullest extent that you and Chris were able to, you know, being in the position that you are, you're not the police. So you have taken everything that you've obtained throughout this entire process. And that is with the London police now. Is that right? Correct. That's with um, her family and the London police. I'm curious to know, we'll never find out if they knew any of this at all. We know from the beginning they were being secretive. So what did they know? What didn't they know? Is this all new to them, what you've uncovered? I'd be curious to know. Well, majority of people we interviewed had not been interviewed by the police. Or if they had been, they hadn't said anything. Because there's a real distrust with this kind of group community with the police force. So I think it would be very hard for the police to try to get in there And this has been a good insight for not only us, but listeners as well into what the job of police is like. Because even if you were able to uncover more than they did, just because they're the police doesn't necessarily mean now that they can go arrest someone over it because there's still not necessarily enough evidence to do that, to put someone away or confirm that they actually did it, you know? So there is a chance unlikely, but there is a chance they knew a lot of this already, but still they don't have enough to to do anything about it. So that may be where they're at, or even now that may be where they're they're stuck again. We just don't know. You know, I talked to a good friend of mine who's an investigator in the Toronto Police Force, and he listened to all the podcast episodes, and we had some really good talks together, and he was really good at telling me what's going on from the perspective of the police. And he's just saying, you know, Carla, you need to package this up for them. You need to give it to them on a plate because there's so many cases going on. They're so busy. They can't just show up in anybody's house and be like, we want to have, we want to search it. There has to be a really good reason for that. You don't want to get into a situation. People are saying, oh, you're, you're profiling us because of where we live or because of our lifestyle. And he's like, it's quite complicated and political at the police force standpoint. So it's not so easy for them. So although I've been able to get into these places and take photos and get information, it would have been a lot harder for them to do it. 
if somebody has witnessed this happening with Shelley, you know, he said they could end up being an unreliable witness. You put them on the witness stand and they fall apart. So you really need strong witnesses that can corroborate the same story, which is, you know, which is a real challenge because he, these people are very transient. They lose their telephones all the time. They're many times homeless. There's like so much going on. It'd be very hard to get them on the stand and have them be believable. Okay. So, and you said you pass this information on to the family as well. You've been in touch with them. Some of them have been on the podcast. Now, when we started, I personally can say, I don't think we ever expected to get this far. Of course, the goal ideally would, well, first of all, be to find Shelly alive. But second is to at least find the body get an answer specifically as to what happened so the family will know. But even at this point, it seems like we've given them a strong sense of what happened. So has that been better at all for the family? What is the the feeling from them? The process has been really hard. Her sister, Laura, and I have worked together a lot on this. She's been instrumental. We wouldn't even be where we are right now without her. I owe a lot to her. I think it's been a tough journey for her. I think perhaps the podcast has helped to structure some of the grief. I think that that Laura thinks about Shelley 24 hours a day. And I think it's debilitating. And she really needs some closure. And not closure, meaning there'll ever be closure, but she just wants to to put her sister to rest. She just wants to have a place that she can go and talk to Shelly and know she's there and just have some peace. And that's really the goal. I mean, it would be if anyone would just even anonymously say, this is where Shelly is, just so we, we know that information, that would make a world of difference to Laura and to the family. To learn more about how to deal with the grieving process, Carla turned to Dr. Pauline Boss, an educator and researcher widely recognized for her research on ambiguous loss. That is, as with Shelley's case, the loss of somebody with no finality or resolution. So I can speak to uh, some of the general points that cut across all families with missing, physically missing people, which I call ambiguous loss. Uh, and ambiguous loss means uh, you don't know if the person is alive or dead, or if you know they're dead, you don't have a body to bury. So you, you can't honor them and have a, a burial and a memorial in the way you want to. Uh, so there's still a lot of ambiguity, even if you think they're dead, quite surely. But if you have no remains or DNA evidence, to say that they're gone. I found this, this was true after 9-11 in New York City when many workers from the World Trade Center towers were buried in the rubble. It's true in Japan more recently after the tsunami, which washed away loved ones. And it's very hard for families, the families left behind, to deal with the ambiguity of not knowing that's the culprit. The culprit is the not knowing, the ambiguity. And most of us are not very adept at living with the stress of not knowing. 
it has to do with randomness. If the randomness of what happens to people, people who go missing are kidnapped or terrorists kidnapped, kidnapped or people who are on drugs who disappear, et cetera, et cetera, or sailors lost at sea, or the Malaysian airliner, for heaven's sakes, which still to this day is a mystery. It bothers most of us because of its randomness. It's like there's no reason for this to have happened. There's no reason for this not to have an answer. So if this can happen to one person, it could also happen to me. In other words, the randomness is what is scary. And it implies if this could happen to this person, it could also happen to me. Is not just at the family, individual and family level. It can also be on the community level. And especially the more recent one I worked with was in Japan after the tsunami. Still working with them, by the way. It's very important for communities to have some kind of memorial for the missing so that the family of the missing at least know that somebody else is aware that they are gone. And this can be quite simple. It does not have to be expensive and extravagant, but it should be some sort of recognition that this person lived and and now they're gone, even if there's no proof. So at the community level, it should be talked about and memorialized in some way. Uh, it could be a memorial service. It could be a marker in the graveyard. It could be whatever the family wants. And culturally, this differs as well. Could you give us like some examples of what families have done to memorialize? The most elaborate and almost perfect memorial is in New York City, Lower Manhattan, after 9-11. But that's more expensive than most of us would ever be able to dream of. But the most important thing, I think, that's done in Washington on the Vietnam Memorial and in New York on the 9-11 Memorial is something even small towns can do. And that is somewhere they have printed the name of the person who is gone so that family members can come and rub their hands over that name. It means that the person lived and the person is gone. And so it doesn't need to be elaborate. It could just be a stone with the person's name on it. It could be a wooden plaque with the person's name on it. It would not have to be elaborate. But I personally think, from my experience of over 40 years working with families of the missing, is that it needs to be their name. Because that's the most personal thing about all of us, our name. You've seen benches with people's name on it in a park, right? That's a wonderful way to have remember someone. After speaking with Dr. Boss, it was clear that there was only one thing left for us to do. At 300 acres, Springbank Park is the largest park in the city of London. It runs along the Thames River, has over 30 kilometers of walking trails, and plenty of beautiful green space for the public to enjoy. Springbank Park was one of Shelley's favorite places to spend time, making it the perfect place for a memorial bench in her honor. So we're looking to make it happen there and deal with the city and take the steps necessary to get that to happen, probably for 
next spring would be the target based on how things work. And we're going to set up a GoFundMe account to raise the money. It's about $2,800 around there to get a bench put together. That concludes Stand Up Speak Up's Finding Shelley DeRoche series. Thanks for listening to Shelley's story. Just a quick interjection. I'm Zach Tolstoy, one of the founders of Stand Up Speak Up. Our podcast is just one part of the Stand Up Speak Up brand. We are supported by an online store of the same name where we sell a variety of artisan products. We have an ongoing blog series with over a dozen contributors, and we offer a series of interactive workshops. Throughout the different iterations of Stand Up Speak Up, our core message and purpose have always been the same. To create a site that allows our customers and us more opportunities to speak up about and support causes, organizations, and groups that we're passionate about and that, of course, could use additional support. My mother and I have learned about allyship over the years from what feels like a thousand and one places and people. We want to encourage members of this fantastic Stand Up Speak Up community to come along and learn with us. So along with our team, we created this workshop featuring videos, articles, and exercises that have really helped the two of us in our own journey towards allyship. Don't worry, it doesn't cost any money, and you don't need to make an account to access the information. We want to make our workshop as accessible as possible because we believe in our message and understand the importance of spreading awareness. The Ally Workshop is split into eight parts, including interactive quizzes and helpful videos. It's intended to introduce you to new skills and courses of action in the world of allyship. The workshop is easy to use and can be done entirely on your cell phone, tablet, or computer at your own pace. With each of the eight sections, taking an average of about 15 minutes or so to complete, or a breezy couple hours on a Sunday afternoon. We're always looking for ways to give a voice to those that need it. If you have a story suggestion for Stand Up Speak Up, please let us know. This series was produced by Carla Stevens Tolstoy. Co-produced, edited, and narrated by Joel at East Coast Radio Creative. A special thanks to all guests and those who gave their help along the way. Coming up, for your extra content today, Carla speaks with Maureen Trask, a mother who has dealt with ambiguous loss since the day her son went missing. She's now an advocate on behalf of families of missing loved ones, hoping to change laws and policy, build positive relations, and raise public awareness and engagement to help fill the gap in support services for those families.
Maureen Trask is an Ontario mother who knows ambiguous loss all too well. Her son Daniel went missing in 2011, and it would be four years before his remains were eventually discovered. From the experience, she realized that much was lacking in terms of support for families of missing loved ones. Maureen is now an advocate for these families and started a group to provide support in the Ontario region. I never experienced a missing person prior to Daniel going missing. Nor did I know of anyone else who had a missing loved one. So as a mom, I mean, you have a son, so you can relate to this. Think of him being gone today. It makes me anxious just to think of that. Exactly. You don't know how to handle it. So what I said is, you know, I didn't learn anything about this. So I need to seek this out. So the first thing I tried to do was in the community, who else has missing persons? Because prior to that, I never paid attention. I'd read the story in the paper. I'd say, oh, that poor family. I'd turn the page and I'd forget about it. So how do I, as a community member, learn how to deal with this and help to understand what families need in our community to cope with this? That's when I learned very quickly there are no services. That's when I learned very quickly the, the police do not encourage families to get together because, quite frankly, that heightens their workload. One of the things we're doing as a group, and we've got this in our community now, is saying where are the roadblocks to finding your missing loved ones? So we engaged both the police and the uh, media 
And the police actually hosted our first group session. And we said, okay, who's, who's got what pains and how do we resolve these issues? That's when the police said, and again, part of my motivation for doing this was I noticed a lot of animosity um, towards the police. And my own experience was, oh, my God, I can't be mad with them. I have to work with them. So how do I work with them and still get what I need? So I wanted to understand why are these people angry at the police? Let's get in a room. Let's talk about our issues and see how we can move forward. That's when they said, well, where there is no evidence of crime, we have no way of getting access to personal information to be able to continue an investigation. And families are like, what? All this time I've been thinking you're not paying attention to my missing loved one and you're telling me your hands are tied because you can't? And I mean, they were angry that, you know, they weren't made aware of this earlier. But the reality is where there's crime, they can get search warrants. That's legislated. Where there is no crime or even where there's a suspected crime, They have no authority to get access to bank records, cell phones, um, video coverage, all of these things. And we said, well, some cases you're getting it. And some, like my case, you're not. So what gives? Apparently, they have informal relationships within communities to access that information. So if they know the person who uh, looks after that information or they uh, have a relationship, the banks will give it out or the the cell phone companies will give it out. And families, quite frankly, I know our family in particular, when Daniel went missing, we asked the police, have you checked the hospitals to see if, you know, there was an accident or something? And they said, technically, we're not allowed to. And we said, well, who is? And they said, well, you can give it a try. So we did. We called our local hospital and said, you know, is, is there any uh, admittance for a Daniel Trust? He's our son and he's missing. How old is your son? He's 28. I'm sorry, we can't, because of privacy and confidentiality, we can't give you that information unless you have power of attorney or uh, a medical uh, approval from your son to share information. And I said, excuse me, why would I have a power of attorney on my 28-year-old son or any medical approval? I never, ever thought of this. I never, ever thought of him disappearing. And they said, well, we're sorry, we can't give you that information. I said, well, could you put a poster up that Daniel is missing so that, you know, if he does come in or if anybody else, you know, notice it, they can make us aware or the police aware. And they said, we, we can't put any personal information up. We have a policy. So, again, a roadblock that we hit that we never, ever would have thought would be a roadblock. It's no wonder families are so frustrated 
because they're all individually trying to solve these issues. They're all confronted with the same similar um, roadblocks along their journey of trying to find their loved one. So I said in that meeting, I said, you know what? This is crazy. Individually, families shouldn't have to struggle this way. There should be a process defined, a system that's followed, not just for uh, one family who may have white privilege or influence, but for all families. So how do we make this happen? Well, they informed me that there's missing persons acts in other provinces, but not Ontario. And I said, why? Why haven't we had this in Ontario? And they said, well, no one's brought it forward. And basically, um, I was instructed to go through my local MPP. So I thought, great, let's let's get this ball rolling. Contacted Catherine June of 2014. She was all for it. She wrote up a petition. Um, I got signatures enough for her to present it to the legislation in October of that year. Um, nothing really happened over the next year other than we were acquiring more signatures, which again, get presented to the legislature when they're received. And also she put forth a motion a year later in, in the house, um, again, saying, you know, we need this legislation. I kept on their toes. I kept pushing. So every month I'd give them a call, you know, where's this, what's happening, Finally, they shared uh, their plan with me about consultations. My goal was to have this in place in 2016. Well, that didn't happen. But in 2017, the minister, one of his mandates to have that Missing Persons Act implemented by the end of 2017. Pushing for missing persons legislation in Ontario is just one of many ways that Maureen is trying to help other families of missing loved ones. To learn more about her story, see the links in our show notes for this episode. And don't forget, also in the show notes, you'll find the GoFundMe page for a memorial bench to honor Shelley DeRoche in Springbank Park. If you'd like to support the cause, go to StandUpSpeakUpToki.com. Thanks again for listening to Stand Up Speak Up. What happens when we play outside? We become healthier, both mentally and physically. We become more creative and more focused. We connect with nature, each other, and ourselves. Let's Take This Outside, a new podcast hosted by me, Marianne Iveson, an aspiring outdoor athlete and nature lover. I speak to athletes, outdoor professionals, and scientists about their connection to nature, how it affects their performance and everyday life. Let's Take This Outside, available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts, and at ivisonvoice.com slash podcast.